0: This is the MLW Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome to Overbooked with Mike Freeland. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of Overbooked, the book club, however you would like to refer to it. My name is Mike Freeland. It's good to be joining you guys again. I do apologize for the delays in between chapters. As you know, uh, a lot of you know, I am a school teacher. I teach uh, middle school, high school, and uh, life gets busy. And I do have a commitment to making sure that I release these chapters for you. Um, Like I said, unfortunately, sometimes there's a little bit of a a delay in between the chapters, but you know what? Once again, thank you so much for hanging with me. We're going to be jumping in here into chapter three. So you know what? Without any further ado, let's, uh, let's jump right in here. This chapter is entitled Training. Soon after I got shot in the face, I learned that my shooter was arrested. He got nine months in jail. And after that, he didn't really learn his lesson either. When he got out, he picked up a gun and once again held up people in an armed robbery. The newscasters on TV went as far as even calling him the sawed-off bandit because he didn't just do it once. He kept doing it over and over again until, until he was finally cut. That fucking prick. When that asshole was in court again for something else after what he did to me, I went on to the hearing. I looked at him on the stand and I wanted to spear him again and finish him off right then and there. It's too bad, though. If the prosecution had stuck to their guns and pushed for an attempted murder for what he had done to me in the first place, they would have maybe saved somebody's life. When he got out of jail the first time, what do you think he did? You guessed it. He went and got a gun again and killed someone else in a heist. When he walked by me after failing parole, he had no expression on his face. After they drug him off to jail again, he stopped and looked at me. He remembered. Don't worry, brother. I don't want revenge on you, man, he said. No revenge on me? Well, that was nice of him. As nice as a venereal disease, maybe. He had some fucking nerve, right? I was one of those who have been looking to get some revenge. He's lucky. There were no pencils around you have to believe in karma though man in the end he got his he got himself killed in prison some bigger and badder guy didn't like what he was doing and shanked him in the shower with a blade made out of a toothbrush as they say live by the sword die by the sword after surviving the bullet to my mouth i knew it was finally time years and years of the sheik Turning every one of my training requests down, I picked up the phone in the hospital room and asked once more. So, will you train me now? There was a long pause before he answered. The Sheik had to have known I was tough enough to handle the rigors of whatever it took to become a professional wrestler now. He knew I knew that. I couldn't picture any excuse he could come up with to address my final request until he actually said it. Terry, you can't wrestle now, anymore. I hate to say it, but somebody will ever book you, he said. You had your face shot off. Come on, I said. I'm not selling this bullshit at all. Well, what would they call you? The Headless Horseman? I continued to no-sell. Okay. Heal up, buddy, he said, laughing on his own nonsense. And we'll start when you're better, then. That was all I wanted to hear now we're talking learning from one of the very best was something i just couldn't wait to do the moment i was healed up enough and ready to go i knew i was ready to go for it in fact within three months after having my face almost blown off my head i was lifting weights on a new 120 pound set and i was reading everything i could on wrestling olympic style I took wrestling in high school to prepare for my training, but that really wasn't enough. You see, my uncle wanted me to know everything I could, so I could really defend myself in the ring if, well, it was a shoot. In the first year, I gained 40 pounds. I ate as much protein as I could. I worked out like a demon. I took more Greco-Roman lessons, and then I finished. I took my first steps into what I was doing, what I really wanted to do. I moved up to Williamstown to train with the legendary Sheik. Now, it didn't matter to me. When I moved, I wasn't leaving anyone from school behind. There was no sort of girlfriend that was in high school. I think I went to a school dance just once, but just for the music. I was into Ozzy and Black Sabbath and Deep Purple and other stuff girls didn't really like. I didn't really go to the dance for a girl or anything either. I was just curious. After that, I never went to a school dance or prom. The only school function was wrestling meets. There was no pussy in high school for me. I was just too shy. The last girlfriend I had was in 10th grade, and another wouldn't come around until I was 20. Our original plan was I would practically live with my uncle to start my training day and night. I pictured hours and hours of him showing me moves, and counters and attacks. I pictured learning everything I didn't quite understand, but I couldn't wait. I pulled up to this half-mile, huge front yard. It was his place. I was excited for my first day. He'd worked many years, and the riches of his efforts had shown. His beautiful house was secluded way out in the country where nobody would bother him. And even more importantly, nobody could see us train. His place really was a mansion with three different floors and a fancy finished basement. He had an indoor pool, a recreation room with a billiard table and other games. He also had an indoor gym. The training room was not big enough to hold a ring, but I figured he must have had some things mapped out. The first night, he said, make sure you get enough sleep, we're getting up early in the morning to start. Okay, I said, what time were you thinking? get up at six o'clock sharp. We need to be out by seven. So the next morning, like clockwork, I woke up as he had asked me at six o'clock in the morning. We ate a little bit. His son Tom was there. My cousin looked a little weird at me and he was only a few months older than I was. We'd hung out from time to time in the past and I liked him enough. However, I knew he was not into wrestling at all. I wasn't sure why he was actually coming with us, but I didn't really care. After we ate, we went out to the front of the house. I could feel my heart pounding out of my chest. Oh god, this is great. We are finally going to train. We must be about to dive off my uncle's ring into some kind of secret location. Tom and I rode with my uncle way out into the woods where I figured there was some secret hideout where my uncle had trained all these other great wrestlers in the past. I knew there was some mystery to wrestling, but I also never knew how to ask about it. I figured he was some kind of secret layer, bat cave or something, and then I finally set my eyes on it. He owned a huge bit of property back there in the woods, and I had no idea where we were going. When we finally reached the clearing, I looked around. There was no chic cave, or there was no ring to be found. Tom and my uncle got out of the truck, the sheep walked over to the edges of the trees and started looking up and down in the air. He pointed, then stood on his head. He pointed again. He shook his head, Ah, uh, no, May- maybe there's some wrestling treehouse or something up here. Something doesn't seem right. Why does he keep looking and shaking his head no? I thought wrong. My uncle then started to nod. Then he walked around to the tailgate and reached in the back of his truck. He slowly pulled out two chainsaws. I knew he was pretty much into the violent side of wrestling, but I never saw how a chainsaw would fit into the whole equation. Before I could ask, he handed me an axe. The rest of the day, I watched them cut down trees and drag over big logs and put them in. And then they landed them right in front of me for me to split. I hammered and hammered and hammered. Oh, I hammered all day at that wood. The pile never seemed to end. We took tons of truckloads back to the house, and we were hungry. We put them into the stove so the fire could be fed for the winter. I was so physically hungry, but we didn't stop until it got dark. Okay, he said. That's enough for that. We headed back with our last load, and then we sat down back at the house for dinner. While we're eating, I felt like it was not my place to ask what really was going on. The next day, I figured we'd probably get some time to do some training. Yeah, he probably just needed me to help out with some chores around the house and get some stuff done so we had some extra time. Yeah, that's probably it. That makes the most sense. All right, he said. You have enough to eat? I nodded. Wake up about six again. We'll be out the door by seven. Okay. Next morning, we drove out and then we turned left. We were heading to a different area. And I thought surely for this time he was bringing me to that secret lair where the ring was hidden. It was all the way out in the middle of nowhere. And again, I was wrong. I almost said something to my uncle. He took out the chainsaws out of the back of his truck again and then stopped. I wanted him to train me at no cost, so I really couldn't say a whole lot. We started cutting down trees again, and it was back to my role that it was before, working with wood all day and breaking my ass. It was always the same thing every morning. It was like that for six months straight, I cannot lie. I thought about quitting a number of times. Man, this is some real Mr. Miyagi bullshit right here, I would think. I came to find out it was all part of something in professional wrestling called Weeding Out the Weak. If I had just said, fuck this, he would have said, okay, you don't have what it takes. And I'm glad I was smart enough to see that if I would have done that, he realized I wouldn't have wanted to be a wrestler and I wouldn't have deserved it. He had to learn to teach me how to work. I had no regrets about going all through this process. I mean, I guess it was a rite of passage. I mean, it really builds character. Well, many years later, I would talk to a guy named Test in the WWF. He never had to go through that crazy working experience that seemingly was unrelated to wrestling in order to get into the ring. I was not jealous of him, however, but I I did feel bad for dickheads like Test who were brought into that way. Coming in and having built no toughness like the Sheik had taught me, it's short-minded. Test only ever worked for the WWF. He walked right into the big leagues without the building blocks and taking any baby steps. Everything was handed to him. So when the time finally came, when they had to let him go, he didn't really know where to go. Six months were gone. After chopping down all those trees, I started to lose the vision that maybe life in the ring was magically not going to be mine. Maybe it would appear one day, and maybe it wouldn't. After one really tough day of splitting logs from sunrise to sunset, I probably only had about one or two hours of sleep before it started all over again. I woke up just that next morning like a zombie. I was just going through the motions. After we ate, I headed to the truck like usual. Before I could get in, my uncle put his hands up and blocked me. No, no, my uncle said. I want you to walk around the side of the house. I rubbed my eyes and I yawned. When I walked behind the house, it hit me like a stack of bricks, my eyes wide open. There it was, a wrestling ring. It was all set up and waiting for me. It was a proud moment. I felt like I accomplished something. I felt like I had passed this test. This is great. Finally, we're going to get into the ring and do some training. I finally finished his hazing or whatever he was trying to do to me. Now it was on to becoming the wrestler. I was about to run over excitedly to the ring and get in when my uncle interrupted my anticipation by saying, See that ring over there? He asked. Yeah, I said. Good. Now go over there and take it down. I I, I don't know if he was trying to break me or what, but uh, I didn't break. I walked over to the ring. I looked it over to the best of my ability, like I was looking for something for the first time. After I finally made some sense of it, I took some tools out of a toolbox that was underneath the ring, and I started to take it apart piece by piece. I dis- disabled it slowly. I removed each turnbuckle with a big wrench that I found in one of the corners. Then I removed all the beams. I figured out how to take it apart pretty easily and it made good, sure hard work to stack everything in nice neat piles when I was done. I wonder of my uncle who was sipping on some nice iced tea in a lawn chair. There I said, the sheik was looking at the sports section of the newspaper and puffing on a big thick cigar. He barely looked up from his reading at my work, and he nodded. Uh, Well, now what? Well, put it back together again, he said, thumbing through the next page. I didn't understand why we would take it down just to put it back up again. But it wasn't my place to question him. I knew that if I was going to succeed, I had to do everything he told me. These things come down to a lot about character. And these things do come down a whole lot faster than they do go up. An hour or so later, I was finally done. I was nervous to tell my uncle that I was finished. However, because of these little things, it looked like dog shit. I tried. I tried my very best, but the ring just looked like hell. The ropes were too loose, and the entire structure looked like it was fall apart and collapse the moment someone even stepped onto it. I went over to my uncle, who was giggling through the funny section. When he looked up at my masterpiece, he was not laughing. He shook his head and got up. So together, my uncle and I realigned every part of the ring, piece by piece. He showed me all the important parts of the ring and just how it needed to be tightened in order to be safe and functional. Once the ring was completely rebuilt and it looked good, I thought we were there. I started having visions of being able to get into the ring and actually do something. That moment was something that I had dreamed about ever since I saw my uncle on television as a young child. Well my uncle said uh well i said it's time he said yes finally it's time that's it he said walking back to his seat and picking up the paper again for you to take the ring down again uh like what the fuck i was thinking that this had to be some absolute kinds of bullshit what i bit my lip i didn't know what else to say I walked over and I took the whole ring down again, by myself. I stacked all the parts into nice little piles again in the corner of the yard, then I walked over to his relaxing station. He was there relaxing in his chair once again, still with the newspaper. I stood there until he nodded at me, and he held his finger up to indicate he was finishing a page. ''Okay, where are we?'' he said, putting the paper down on his lap. Oh, ''Oh, oh yes. Now, I need you to do something else. I need you to put the ring together again, he said, taking a sip of his cool beverage. This time, all by yourself. And he did the same thing basically all day. By the end of the day, I had taken down the ring and put it back up again five or six times. It was insane. Finally, it was too dark to even move boards back and forth to be able to see what I was actually doing. That also meant that we weren't going to be draining. I knew today it was a bust. Eventually, we went back to the house and we had a late dinner. The Sheik always ate late. Well, he always ate well, too. He had a big sandwich, always, or something. He always had a good square meal. My Aunt Joyce was a great cook, and the meals that she made were very, very good. The next day, after putting the ring up again, I was in for yet another surprise. Then we finally got in the ring. We started very basic at first. There was a whole lot of locking up and arm bars, but then I was more than satisfied. We worked hard for a number of hours that first day, and then he talked about some of the business that night. It was all day long, every day, and at the end of the day, I had to take the ring apart again all by myself to make sure to keep it out of any potential rain. That's right, every day after a tough workout, It was never done until all the boards and the canvases was taken off and put into the barn. I learned about being on the road. We could train forever in that ring behind the Sheik's house, but that had no real context without seeing it being used in the real world. Therefore, a few months later, after I started hanging out with him a little more, my uncle had me driving around with him to different shows all over the country. But I didn't just show up for a free show. Wherever I went, the Sheik would have me there clearly to set up the ring and put up all the chairs around it. I trained for nearly two years. Sometimes before a show, I would actually get in the ring with some of the guys. We would work some spots and all. The funny thing is, the Sheik never smartened me up on how wrestling actually really worked. I mean, I developed the idea of how secrets played a factor into the whole thing, but he never really told me anything about what to believe or that something was not really quite what we assumed it was, or what we had perceived to be on TV. That was considered being old school, it's protected. Finally, the day came when the Sheik said I was ready to compete in my first match in front of a live audience. Come May 1985, Sheik told me I was ready to go. Since I was a special case, he had me shadow him practically all of his bookings. Some think my first match was for big time wrestling, but that isn't true. His promotion has shut down before my debut could even happen. My first card with The Sheik was on the road for a small promotion called Midwest Championship Wrestling that ran out of Ontario for Big Jim Lancaster. But I wasn't set to wrestle in Canada that night. I was actually working for them in a small town outside of The Sheik's stomping grounds in Detroit. Now, at that time, Midwest's roster featured guys like Ricky Johnson, The Rock's uncle, Kevin Sullivan, and Mark Levin. All those guys had worked with the Sheik and thought a great deal of him. He was a super guy and a promoter. Harley Race, for example, tells a story about how he once got hurt and my uncle paid him for six months until he was better and ready to get in the ring again. That was just the kind of guy he was. So when those guys had heard his nephew was about to debut, they were super supportive of me. Now, little did I know, however, that was not the atmosphere the Sheik wanted to be in. He wanted me to learn the hard way and claw my way to the top to survive just like everybody else did. I knew for a fact that the Sheik told the other guys in the locker room to look at me the same way they would look at any other green guy. He wanted them to treat me just like everybody else and not to give me a ride on the road to make things easy. This was actually good that he did it. On the first night I walked into the locker room, the guys nodded at me as if I finally walked over to look at the card that was on the wall there was my name not just to see that it was my uncle wrestling that night i lipped to myself my first match of the lineup almost out loud the canadian road warrior versus terry sr i found my little corner in the locker room i opened up my suitcase and i got dressed blue tights blue blue boots That's what it was. I looked like a generic creator wrestler on a video game with no accessories or nothing to bring to life to me. It was as plain Jane as it could be. I couldn't look any more plain, even if I tried. Yes, my ring name was Terry S.R. The funny thing is, the Sheik never told me what the letters actually stood for. For that, I understood if somebody asked me what it meant, he would often say, Mind your business and not reply. Therefore, I never even bothered to ask. However, I was told later that sometimes he would say to some of the boys whom he actually liked that the SR stood for Sheik's Revenge. That implied meaning that he was passing the torch to me and that he was unleashing a second coming of himself on the rest of the world. Someone else once told me that one of them stood for Superior Race playing off of the whole suicidal, homicidal, genocidal, Middle Eastern idea, but I don't know. What I do know was the first time I heard the ring announcer call Terry Sr. I was about to bring my A-game. My heart pounded in my chest. I was walking the aisle, all set to make the Canadian Road Warrior in the hall, the Polish section of Hamstrick, Michigan. The match was all in the ring. There was nothing crazy off the ropes no flashy stuff no crazy finish it was just the basics and that was it all on the mat we did everything the sheik wanted me to i was actually pretty proud of myself for not messing anything up we made it to the end it was a 10 minute draw the way it worked for me wrestling as a green guy back then is if i was facing anyone above my expertise level i was more than certainly able to have lost my debut match but in this case the canadian warrior was about the same level I was. So they decided the match would be a draw. After the match, all the boys ran over to me. The match was a sellout at the curtain because everybody wanted to see if the Sheik's nephew had what it takes. All the guys were actually really nice to me. They came over, they congratulated me on my first match and patted me on the back. Some of them even told me that they liked what they saw in my match. After my little party was over, the Sheik came over to shit on me. You wanna learn, right? You don't need to know what you did well, you need to know what you did wrong, he said. So stop smiling right now and listen. The sheik nitpicked at my match and pointed out all the things I did wrong and then offered a number of options that I could do to improve upon it. Now, if another vet tries to teach you something after a match, you do what he tells you to do. But what was I going to do? Uh, I said, yes, yes, sir, politely. All right, then you do it, he said. You understand? Uh, Yes, yes, sir, I said. Now you listen to me and nobody else. I am the one teaching you. Well, after I wrestled that first match, my training started to fall into a standard format, a pattern we did every show. Sheik would have to pull me to the hall, into the hall of the factory-built 1972 limousine that we all could see. I always drove the limousine. We always rode in the back. He loved that car and considered an extension of himself he had it until the day he died next i would work the early match on the card every single night he brought me to and i would he would give me pointers after my matches then i would finally referee some matches later on in the evening he had me ref as many matches as i could because he was introducing me to every aspect of the game he wanted full immersion it was smart too he literally was just throwing me under the bus and trying to give me the best seat in the house explanation so I could learn everything. There were only a few exceptions to this formula though. The Sheik coincidentally had a quick tour over in Singapore and among my very first few matches were there. That was all a fluke. That experience was all I knew at the time. I never saw a plane after that for many, many years. When I wasn't wrestling or refereeing, I was working out. Even though the Sheik wasn't all jacked up, he was always exercising all the time. He did a lot of push-ups, a lot of squats. He was actually in really good shape, especially for someone older. During the 1980s, I wrestled for various independent promotions in Memphis, Michigan, Ohio, Canada, and Hawaii. I wrestled under all kinds of names, but I never used the one on my birth certificate. I was never billed as Terry Brunk, because obviously that option would have caused some people to confuse me with Terry Funk. So I had a lot of other names, but not by my choice. I didn't really care about any name, and maybe I should have. Most times than other, after hearing the ring announcer say whatever my name was to announce, I thought to myself, oh man, why couldn't you just say something better than that? And then there was Terry Superfly Snuka. That's right, I was in the ring one time, and my cousin, Captain Ed, was the ring announcer. The Sheik's son was on that card, and he had it all figured out for me. We'd have a very special guest tonight, and I'm very fortunate to be in the very same ring with the brother of Jimmy Superfly Snuka. Oh, really? The audience cheered. It's called cheap heat. That's right, Terry Superfly Snuka. Oh my God, you got to be kidding me, I said underneath my breath. Now, most of the time in the early professional wrestling, you're exposed and I got my exposure in Canada. Most of my first major tours with multiple dates were hanging with grizzled veterans named the Bear Man, Dave McKinney, a promoter at a Southern Ontario. The Bear Man, a.k.a. Wild Man, had worked many times with my uncle and was actually operating his own promotion under the name Big Time Wrestling. That was in Canada. Both my uncle and the Bear Man were very carny in their booking approach. They both used sideshow like acts like female midgets and animals to sell tickets. So it made sense to share the name. My uncle wasn't using it anyhow. So at the time it was cool with the bear man, keeping it alive. So today I call it big bear wrestling. Like many old school promoters, Dave was a former wrestler himself, probably turning to the business side of things when he got older and wasn't able to work. Dave started to show me and tell me about his wrestling career in Toronto, the Maple Leaf Wrestling. It was his first time working under that name, the flying Frenchman, Jacques Dubois. After a short time, he realized that he was actually pretty decent, but needed to do something to make himself look different from the rest. Around that time, he decided to take on a student that he could train because if you train somebody, you would get noticed. Eventually, Dave started training terrible Ted, who stood almost 7 feet tall and weighed over 600 pounds. Now, Ted wasn't Canadian. He was from the States. Ted himself had traveled with a carnival in the early years. While being pretty wild and animalistic at heart, he too came from a performance background which made him a natural in the professional wrestling ring. The transition from a three-ring circus to the wrestling ring was therefore relatively easy. However, one of the first things Dave had to do with Ted was to have his nails removed before the big match together. That's right. Terrible Ted was an American black bear. You see, there was a Canadian carnival promotion that used to run wrestling matches as sideshows that Dave managed to work for. When the company went bankrupt in the early 1950s, selling off his assets, McKinley saw an opportunity. He bought the trained bear to teach him professional wrestling so it would help him get noticed and draw money. Along with the gimmick, McGigney decided to grow his hair and beard out nice and long and look like Tarzan and even started to call himself the wild man from time to time. Soon after, it was the bear man was officially born. By the late 1950s, the plan was in full swing. Terrible Ted and the bear man took their show onto the road and saw great success. They traveled the circuit in different wrestling promotions, sometimes in front of as many as 10,000 people in the Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto. They worked for Stampede Wrestling in Calgary, across Alberta and Saskatchewan, and they would occasionally work for Tri-State Sports out of Idaho. Their act was great. The Bear Man learned a lot about the business. Incidentally, in 1978, Bear Man continued to make headlines, but not how he wanted to. Another one of his trained bears, Smokey, managed to get into a house and mauled his live-in girlfriend to death. Come 1988, I was booked for some matches with Bear Man. We had been very friendly with my uncle over the years and decided to give me a chance on some of his shows he was promoting. I remember on my very first tour with him in Ontario, the tour is very long and many miles between events. It seemed like there was always rushing here and rushing there, sometimes eight-hour trips between venues. Recalling those early Canadian memories now is tough for me because, well, it's all kind of like a big blur. I do, however, remember one very grisly match for the bear man all too well. By the time we pulled into the town for the show, we were already late. I was dying. With very little commercial between stops, I can honestly say that I was hungry as a bear. I wasn't ready, I wasn't really prepared. And just before bell time, we finally ran to the gas station. It was somewhere we had to grab some type of food. I think it was a cup of chili and it was a less than an hour before our match. When we pulled up what I believe was a high school gym, I had a long since devoured this spicy stew. I was like a pig. The show had already started and I immediately learned that when I was booked on fourth, fifth match with just enough time to get dressed, the bell called for me and I jogged to the ring. As many do in the ring, we try to get there as quickly as we can and has made my way down to ring to face somebody called Joey War Eagle. It was an Italian playing a Native American. I realized that something was wrong. With each step, I felt my stomach churn. My makeshift meal was going right through me. Shit. I think I ate some bad Canadian chili. Once that thought entered my mind, it was all about the exit. That idea was all it took. Every time I took a bump, it felt like the impact was working on the chili further down my intestines and closer to my bunghole. I immediately had to adjust my performance. I had to limit hitting the mat as best I could as a workaround. I hurried through my match, clenching my buttocks hard like a nerd in jail. Most of it actually turned out okay, but when the time the finish came around, I was a little worried. Then, just as I feared, my opponent splashed me, and I made a splash in my underwear. Fortunately for me, right after that move, there was the pin. One, two, three. Fortunately for me, right after the pin, I knew I'd just shit myself. Just like a hooker walking through a crowded hotel lobby, I had to do the walk of shame out there, no-selling, a big load dripping out of my pants. When I finally made it back into the entranceway, I saw a familiar face waiting for me. It was Joe who had beat me back to the locker room, and he was waiting. I was nervous because I didn't really want one of the old-timers to know exactly what had happened to me. I was hoping he wouldn't be around long enough to actually figure out what I had done. Still, because he was standing right there as if he wanted to talk to me about the match, I felt obligated. I went ahead and I asked him for feedback, even though I really wanted to push my way all the way to the showers and clean my juicy ass. How was it? I asked hoping for a one-word answer. Okay, Joey, War Eagle, replied, Italian, playing a Native American. It was pretty good at the start. Then, uh, then, then it hit him, the smell of freshly made bad Canadian chili shit. He scowled and wrinkled his nose in disgust. He knew damn well what had happened, and he shook his head. Uh, okay, we can talk about this later. Uh, now hurry and get cleaned up. The match literally was the shits. After a number of Canadian matches and tours, I remember the last time I was scheduled to work for The Bear Man, which was set to be in a big run, actually, in Newfoundland. My calendar was pretty open when Bear Man called me to come in as a fill-in for a second or third show on the tour that had already started and he needed somebody to fill a spot for some remaining dates. I guess it was perfect timing. I was getting much better in the ring, and I learned from my mistakes. For this tour, I planned to be early for all my events and to not eat any gasoline chili from any gas stations before my matches. I was also excited to be on the shows because I knew that Bearman was driving around and he was a big name who worked with big stars and he was old school and old school wrestling fans were familiar with him and another person named Adorable Adrian Adonis. Like any newer talent, you wanted to pick a vet's brain whenever you could, but I figured it would be a good opportunity for me to do that. I mean, listen, he knows adorable Adrian Adonis. Adrian was fired right after WrestleMania 3 Even though he could still go in the ring, at that point, his weight had gotten out of control. By 1987, he had gained over 150 pounds and was tipping the scales around 400 Therefore, his big TV money feud with Brutus the Barber Beefcake, it never happened. Being sent home from the WWF was a wake-up call for Adrian. Adrian knew that he needed a life change or he was risking losing life altogether. He lost a spot in New York due to weight and knew he needed to do something to get back into shape. Therefore, he started training hard in his hometown of Bakersfield, California, hoping for a comeback. He started hitting the gym hard with Bobby Davis, a wrestling manager, and their hard work actually started to pay off. Adrian dropped nearly 100 pounds. He also dropped the drag gimmick in an attempt to look more serious by promoters and started teaming up again with his ex-partner, Dick Murdoch. Adrian finally got his shit together and looked almost like he did in the early 80s when he was working the tough guy gimmick against Bob Backlund on TV. Still in need of a gig, anything he could grab, the Slimmer Adonis was booked on that same tour I was in in the middle of nowhere. He had been in and out of Japan, working for AWA spots with Cowboy Bob Orton, where he was feuding with Tommy Rich and Greg Gagne. He also mentioned being managed by a young Paul Heyman. Stay tuned, more about that guy later. But just before I hit the road, I learned that working with Adrian just, wasn't in the cards for me in Newfoundland. It didn't take long for the bad news to travel. You see, Adonis didn't really make it to the next show. In fact, he didn't make it all together, and neither did Bear Man. Apparently, Bearman was with Adonis and a tag team called the Kelly Twins, who were also widely recognized in Canada for Coors Beer and Pizza Delight and bank commercials on TV. And they were all riding together in a van through a small coastal town called Lewisport. Then the driver, Williams, lost control behind the wheel. Now, reports differ, but mostly say Williams turned his head away from some blinding sunlight when a huge fucking moose jumped in front of the path of their truck out of nowhere. He obviously swerved quickly to avoid hitting the massive animal. In doing so, the vehicle drove off the side of a bridge and crashed down into the water 100 feet below. Right after it went down, the promoter's ring truck pulled up behind them. The guys that Bearman hired to handle the ring were right there on the scene. Now, allegedly, some say that these included Rambo Sam, a guy Bearman sometimes would use to wrestle his bears, and Robbie Funk, but I don't know. I wasn't really there. They moved quickly, but the sad part of it, many believe it would not help at all but rather because they knew the opportunity. You see, people knew that Bear Man had ticket money in that van from the weekend shows. They also knew that Adrian had big money on him because he had come straight from Canada after finishing his big Japanese tour. Possibly thinking that everyone in the van had died. It was also possible that the vultures flew out of the truck and down the big ravine to rob them. Rob the dead guys. There was also this story that was getting really, really bad. Allegedly, when whoever it was got to the wreckage that was below, they opened the back of the van and rifled through the wrestler's belongings. After grabbing the ticket money from Bear Man and some $20,000 from Adrian, they realized that Adrian was still alive. The story goes on to say that the guys had pulled Adrian from the water and possibly saved his life. However, when they grabbed him for his arm, they took off his Rolex and left him crying for help. In the end, unconscious driver during all of this, William, would be the only survivor. His brother Adrian and the Bear Man all died in that grim Monday morning. Accounts of this were all still pretty sketchy, and the rumors around it were a lot due to conflicting reports of what actually happened. Maybe it's due to some kind of cover-up. Maybe it was because money went missing. I don't know. All I can say is only in wrestling. It wouldn't be until the early 1990s that I started to be called yet another name. People backstage would come to call me the king of the independence. While I was flattered to be called this, it really wasn't a compliment. If you think about it, the king of the independence only means that you're the king of all the broke guys. Now in all seriousness, it took more than seven years before I got my big break to go to Japan. This was probably good because I really got to hone my skills. It was almost like my training was still underway. Now, before that break, I was really doing all these independent shows. I could find really anything I could get my hands on. And, you know, I'll admit that there wasn't many that were very known. In fact, many were unknown. I would be lucky enough if I could find a three or four month stint. Even his nephew, The Sheik, a high profile wrestler, Opportunities for me were scarce. It was hard to find any really good shows that I could work on in my area to keep learning. The Sheik would always help where he could. He would try to find me shows, but there was just none within driving range of where I lived. Everything worth a shit was at least 12 to 15 hour drive or a plane ticket away. As any green guy knows, you're not going to get on a plane ticket from a promoter wrestling someone that's named Terry S.R., the Superfly. So, at this point in my career, money was a little dry. I was broke, eating lots of tuna from a can to work out my expenses. I was driving around like a motherfucker, and my uncle was just getting older. He wasn't working as much anymore as he used to, where I could just tag along with him. He had lost a lot of his power, actually, in the business, and it seemed that the business was passing him by. He didn't have the same power with anyone anymore. You see, I started wrestling right around the time that videotapes were just coming out. Now, not many promoters actually had VCRs yet. It was actually something to get your name out there if you were a new guy. And you really had to make a name for yourself. Vince McMahon was already killing the territories before I debuted in 1985. So there was even fewer options by the time I started getting ready. I just figured that eventually I would get a break and I would get some where even though i didn't exactly know where where was i didn't really even care i didn't care about the nwa i didn't care about the wwf i just wanted to wrestle and i wanted to be the best that i could wrestle i also wasn't working on any innovative style yet i knew the Sheik wouldn't have allowed me to do crazy stuff on his shows early on so i just kept on working old school style However, whenever I was alone or with some of my uncle's students, I would sneak in some of that crazy stuff whenever I could. That's going to do it for chapter three. So many things that we learned about in this chapter. Um, We're learning that Sabu, you know, never really got a big break. He did the best he could, where he could, when he could. Uh, He got some opportunities from his uncle as far as training, but we learned a lot about the weeding process. I mean, obviously going into the woods and cutting down trees for, for months at a time and then setting up a ring and tearing it down and setting it up and tearing it down. You know, they call that paying your dues. And I don't know if that necessarily exists as much today as it once did, but You can tell that the way Sabu was brought up, he was to respect every aspect of the business. Obviously, he did a lot of refereeing. He had a lot of long car rides. Um, He worked with some very strange independent uh, wrestlers as well. We heard the phrase carny used a few times in this chapter, which I thought was really interesting. Um, We've heard phrases like sideshows and carnival acts how that kind of uh, lends itself to professional wrestling as well so there's so many different elements that we're learning about right now and then towards the end of this chapter we're learning that the sheik really didn't have as much stroke towards the end of his career that he did when Sabu started training with him and he started to realize being Sabu that he was going to have to make a name for himself at some point so when we jump into chapter four we're going to start kind of finding out you know, is Sabu going to start kind of venturing out on his own? Is Sabu going to start doing some things that are a little bit against what his uncle would normally go for? Or does he continue to still work the old school style and hopes that maybe sticking with that is going to get him somewhere? Who knows? But chapter four is going to be titled RVD. It seems like we're going to be getting introduced to another huge star, which is uh, Rob Van Dam, And What role RVD plays in the career of Sabu? All right. um, If you are enjoying what we're doing right now, please go ahead and let us know on social media. You can hit us up on our Twitter page. Uh, You can hit me up as well on Twitter. I am at Mike Freeland. Uh, Hit me with a DM. Let me know if you enjoyed the chapter and let us know if there's some things that you learned through uh, the covering of this book that you did not know before. All right, that's going to do it. And I will catch you next time on Overbooked.